Welcome to today's issues. Join us for the next hour as we offer a Christian response to the issues of the day. Here's your host, Ed Vitagliano. And welcome to today's issues. Ed Vitagliano sitting in for Tim Wildman today. I'm joined by Fred Jackson. Good morning, Fred. Morning, Ed. Morning. And Chris Woodward. Good morning. News reporter extraordinaire for American Family News. No arguments. Yeah, he's not denying it. No, 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 no. no. I said, well, I said good morning. I didn't, I didn't want to speak over you again. Uh, you said good morning, and that's all you need to say, right? That's right. You let your stories speak for you. Yes. There you go. All right. These broadcasting classes are really paying off. Yeah. Now you do a great job, Chris. We are, we're blessed to have you. Absolutely. Can, more than I can say for some people around here. <laughs> Folks, if you want to see me giving the stink eye to Brent Creeley, you can do that by going. To... <laughs> no, I love Brent. Now listen, folks, I love everybody. That's just, I just mind my own business. I don't tease people around here. Uh-huh. I just get my job done, work done. And uh, if you want to see me lying through my teeth, you can do that. <laughs> Facebook or YouTube, search for Today's Issues and click through. You can watch us do this here show, or we recommend you go to streaming.afa.net, streaming.afa.net. It is our own streaming platform, and a lot of our programs are streamed, radio programs. The uh, video is streamed live during the show, so uh, you can uh, you can watch. And if you'd like to, we do also recommend that you download the AFR app onto your smartphone or other portable device, and you can listen to American Family Radio no matter where you are, as long as you have a good signal. So, all right, hey, um, Fred, we were just talking just as the the news was finishing up and we're getting ready to go live on the air that we are less than a week away from the midterms. We've been talking about the midterms, it seems like, forever. Yeah. And uh, now they are upon us. Yeah, and I, I think it has to do with the political temperature in the country. Uh, I've been here 25 years now, and I don't think I've seen the country this divided, this polarized. Uh, and basically it's because, and I, I, I'm trying not to be partial here, but the reality is, and even some Democrats, old Democrats say this, the Democratic Party today has moved far, far away from the moorings of let's say back even in Bill Clinton days, right? It it has moved far, far away. Even Barack Obama, even Barack Obama days, and uh, we we have a clip of a, uh, a actually a fundraiser for Barack Obama, and he was on with uh, Neil Cavuto yesterday, and I'm looking through our list here. I thought we had a clip of Peoples. Yes, it's number three. Clip number three. Okay, this this is a, a gentleman, Don Peebles. He was a fundraiser for Barack Obama. Neil Cavuto uh, was on Fox yesterday talking to him, and Don Peebles was very frank and very honest. You know, when he was asked questions about by Cavuto about you know what's going on with the party, what about Biden, etc., he didn't try to spin it which a lot of mouthpieces for the Democratic Party do. Uh, Peebles did not. Again, he's a fundraiser for Barack Obama when Barack Obama was president. I want you to listen to what he had to say about the 
prospects of the current Democratic Party. Cut three. Of course, this election is about a referendum on his leadership. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the Democratic Party has to start fielding some better candidates. And, uh, and I think that's what one of the problems they're having right now is that the candidates are not resonating with voters and their message is more about scaring people as opposed to present day actions or results or what's actually happening in the country. And I think the Republicans are having an edge because they're talking about the key issues that Americans feel are very important. One of those is crime. Boy, you talk about timing. Okay, that was an interview yesterday around 3.30 in the afternoon. We have just learned in the last hour that President Joe Biden, tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern, is going to give a speech. Maybe some networks will carry it. I'm not sure. And this is a, a surprise speech. It's surpri- this wasn't no. This wasn't on the docket a week ago or two weeks ago. Okay. Remember what people said. Problem with the Democrats now, they're just trying to scare people. Right. Biden apparently hasn't heard that message because tonight he is going to speak at, uh, I think it is Union Station, which is just a few blocks away from the U.S. Capitol. The theme of his speech tonight, democracy is in jeopardy. And you know what's causing the threat to democracy? It's those election deniers. That's what you're going to hear tonight coming from Joe Biden. And uh, he's going to talk about, you know, January 6th and all that sort of thing. Just like Don Peoples said, that's not resonating with people. The major issues over and over and over again, all of the polls, even polling from liberal outlets, it's the economy. Right. It's crime. That's what people are worried about. That's what's driving people to the polls. It's the economy. It's it's the gasoline prices. It's the grocery prices. It's the crime in Democrat-run cities. People are scared. So they're 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 scared about their economic future. In in certain places in the country, they're scared to go to the grocery store. Right. Even before they hit the prices at the grocery store. Right. So this is the kind of thing. But Joe Biden tonight is going to talk about threats to democracy. Of course, he will not mention uh, those who have talked about threats to democracy. Uh, like Stacey Abrams has questioned election results. Uh, Hillary Clinton questioned election results. But apparently it's okay when they do it. Yeah, they're not election deniers, and they're not a threat to our democracy. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I keep going back to this, and I, I, I thought about it because you mentioned uh, it's the economy. Yeah. Okay, Because I remember... A statement from uh, James Carville, who was working on the Clinton campaign before he was elected in 1992. And Carville would say, and this is what the campaign would say, it's the economy, stupid. Yes. All right. Now, stay with me, folks. What, what I'm trying to get at here is that this kind of speech that Joe Biden is making tonight does not work when people are afraid economically. Yes. Okay. If you go back to the election in 1992, where uh, George H.W. Bush lost his re-election campaign to um, Bill Clinton, uh, a lot of people who were alive at that time and, you know, who weren't just born or, you know, were paying attention to politics. If you remember, George H.W. Bush was extremely popular with the American people because of the first Gulf War. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like his approval rating was through the roof. After that was over, economically, the country began to struggle mm-hmm. and his popularity 
dropped like a rock. Yeah. Okay. He was not seen as being uh, tied in with the suffering, uh, cognizant of the suffering economic troubles of the American people, and he wound up losing. Yep. And in terms of what Joe Biden is peddling right now and the Democrats are peddling, people aren't buying it. You had the luxury of talking about these kinds of things when, after 2016, between 2016 and 2020, when the economy was doing well, mm-hmm. that's when people will listen to you. Yes. So all the talk about President Donald Trump and what he was tweeting and this and that, that kind of stuff res- can resonate with people and even with your own party because the economy's doing well. Yeah. But now the economy's not doing well and people, even in his own party, yes, we're talking about uh, a larger than normal uh, percentage of black voters, 22, uh, 20%, I think mm-hmm. are thinking Republican, yes. 20, uh, over 60% of Hispanics. Why? Because the economy, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy. And the Biden administration, yep. uh, apparently does not remember that lesson. Well, it's, and it's border security. We talk about right. crime, but added to that has a, has its own category is we've, uh, Joe Biden has allowed an invasion of this country. You, you can't describe it any other way. Uh, we're talking about people by the millions now have been allowed to enter this country. And the fentanyl problem that all yes. also has occurred. Hundreds of our young people are dying every week from fentanyl that's coming across our border. By And the, this, this is not Republicans saying this. This is Border Patrol people. It's entering this country by the tons. Yes. By the tons. Well, Chris, we, we hadn't given you much opportunity to, to jump in here. Yeah, anything you want to add to this, or you got another story that's uh, related to it? It is related to it. Uh, energy is a big reason why we have inflation, yes. uh, the energy problems. And uh, one thing Joe Biden has done for a long time now is badmouth uh, big oil, saying, you guys are making record profits, you're bringing in record revenues, you should, you know— Help the American people and bring down prices, as if oil companies set their own prices. They don't, as you'll hear in just a moment. But I want to begin with audio of Joe Biden this week at the White House, our White House, criticizing oil companies and saying, you guys need to bring down prices to help people at the pump. And if you don't, you're going to face new taxes and restrictions. Clip one. Oil companies, record profits today are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war, the windfall from the brutal conflict that's ravaging Ukraine and hurting tens of millions of people around the globe. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country to invest in America by increasing production and refining capacity because they've ha- they don't want to do that. They, they have the opportunity to do that. Lowering prices for consumers at the pump. You know, if they don't, they're going to pay a higher tax on their excess profits and face other re- restrictions. My team will work with Congress to look at these, op- these options that are available to us and others. Now, that same guy referred to his predecessor as someone who acted like a dictator. And he's speaking tonight on what he calls threats to democracy, but I digress. I have some audio here from American Petroleum Institute giving their two cents to Biden's remarks. Clip two. 
He repeated the same debunked assertions he's made in the past, and again arrived at a policy proposal that will do the exact opposite of what would actually help families and businesses in this country. This has become a trend. The administration takes credit for every cent of decreases in gasoline prices, but when prices go the other way, the finger pointing begins. So let me be crystal clear on what the president proposed yesterday. Increasing taxes on American energy discourages investment in new production, which is the exact opposite of what we need to do. Oil companies do not set prices. Global commodity markets do. Bad policies matter, and canceling pipelines, increasing duplicative regulations, asking foreign producers to increase oil production, or more baseless accusations of price gouging all send the wrong signal to the markets and to the American energy producers working every day to provide the fuels we all need. You know, Fred, I, 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 would, I would accept what the president said about the war in Ukraine, and I would say, yeah, that, that's probably playing a part. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what was the name of this guy from the American Petroleum? That's Mike Summers. Okay. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, accept some of what the president is saying, because as Mike Summers was mentioning, a lot of times the prices are set by the the world commodities market, and when you have uh, markets, and when you have um, a war in Ukraine, and you have Russia, Ukraine, and the threat to, you know, natural gas, the the, the pipeline for heating, all, all those kinds of things do have a ripple effect. Okay, I, I I'm not an economist, but I would say, okay, Mr. President, I'll I'll listen to that argument, except for the fact of his declared war on fossil fuels yes what right out of the gate first day uh, after the inauguration mm-hmm. that tells me that uh the president is has got the uh, uh fossil fuels in the crosshairs that's right and we've heard the reports of the you know the decreased production the shutdown pipelines as this uh, guy was saying uh, Mike Summers. And so uh, the fact that the president is offering a reasonable explanation for some of the problems we have with fuel in this country uh, doesn't fly with me because of all the other stuff he's done. Yeah. Well, during, uh, during the Trump years, this country was energy independent. Yes. In fact, we were shipping uh, oil and gas to other countries. Joe Biden comes into office and we've said this over and over again, first thing, and we're not exaggerating, first day after uh, inauguration, he declared war on fossil fuel companies. He shut down the Keystone Pipeline. Right. So if if he had not done that, the country would at the very least be able to weather the problems caused yes. by the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we could up production. We could encourage uh, faster construction of pipelines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But because he declared war on fossil fuels, that has put us behind the proverbial eight ball. Yes. That's what Ukraine did. So we could not handle that threat caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine as well because he declared war on fossil fuels. And now, of course, his response to this, those bad oil companies, we're just going to tax them. Right. They're the bad guys. And but what you, is he going to do with the let, – let's say he had the he, – which he doesn't. No. Unilaterally. Let's say he had the right under the Constitution to just say we're going to tax oil companies. What is he going to do with the money? Yeah. 
I mean, it's not going to go to the American consumers no. who are paying at, at the pump. Um, no, uh, listen, I, I don't I don't buy what he's selling. And more importantly for him and the Democratic Party, the uh, voters, by and large, aren't buying it either. I read a story this week talking about potential uh, shortages of diesel fuel oh, on, yeah. the, on the East Coast. Yeah, that's a real that's a real legit thing. Uh, it sounds like a rumor, but it's it, it's real. We've covered it. Uh, we have stories about this on AFN.net featuring groups like uh, the Institute for Energy Research. But the Northeast is really where you're seeing a lot of issues uh, for a number of reasons, including uh, just getting trucks there uh, and also the demand for heating oil, stuff like that. It's kind of a perfect storm, uh, except it involves diesel. Right. So this this administration's energy policy has been uh, horrific. And the American people are paying the price, not just at the pump, Uh uh, not just with shortages. As Chris just mentioned, the heating fuel is expected to skyrocket uh, this winter, all right, all because of the policies of this president. And as we've noted since the top of this program, that appears to be in part what's going to cost Democrats at the polls. And, you know, we've talked on this program before. Uh, Tim might have brought it up on Monday. Um, This... uh, this dem- current Democratic Party, okay, as you mentioned, Fred, this isn't this isn't the party of Bill Clinton or Tip O'Neill, Barack, or- Tip O'Neill, you know, Barack Obama, even Barack Obama, who who's a, a sure enough lefty. Don't get me wrong, but he was pragmatic. Yes. Now the the party has been just about taken over uh, by revolutionaries. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, so. This party, the Democratic Party, is going to have its hands full right after the midterms. If it is disastrous, mm-hmm. uh, there's going to be talk about what do we do to change course. You're going to have a civil war inside the Democratic Party, and it may cost Joe Biden the rest of his term. This uh, Don Peebles, this uh, former fundraiser for Barack Obama, in this interview with Neil Cavuto yesterday, was asked about, okay, uh, what if the Republicans do take the House and the Senate? Uh, what does that mean for Joe Biden? And, you know, Joe Biden may resign or maybe he's impeached. I don't know. But then Peebles says you got Kamala Harris behind him. And Kamala Harris, Peebles was saying, uh, is even less popular than Joe Biden. Right. And the, he says that, okay, so, so you start to go down the line, the Democratic line. And people says, he ha, he mentioned somebody, but he says it's six years before they have the next candidate that he believes would be a Barack Obama-type person right. who could lead the party back into power. Mm-hmm. But this is a Democrat major donor talking this way. So I, I, it was one of the most frank discussions that I've heard yet about the problems what has happened, I think, the the Democrats believed, remember, you go back to the 2020 election, they believed that somehow Joe Biden could be sold as a moderate. Right. Because he'd been around the Senate for years yes. and years, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, of course, I remember his inaugural speech, we're going to bring the country together. We need unity. Well, Not uniter in chief. Uniter in chief. Well, that never happened from day one. Right. He, you know, he drove the... And he, he's being run by a, well, I you know, as a Christian, a wicked LGBTQ 
uh, agenda. That is part of the agenda, right. too, uh, because we saw that manifested in our schools across the country. Threatening school lunches Threatening, yes. for, for underprivileged children. Well, and we go back to Virginia. Parents, you know, uh, we had this incident with the Attorney General of the United States basically referring to parents concerned about what's going on in schools as domestic terrorists. Yes. So you, you add all of that up. And the Democrats, unless they change their agenda, they are basically uh, what we have going to happen next Tuesday. The jury is going to come back with its with its decision. Yeah, on the and, Democratic and, Party. And if the Democrats lose big, in terms of losing the House, which is expected, but maybe even losing the Senate, which would frankly be surprising. Mm -hmm. All right, the Democrats will have nobody to blame but themselves. That's right. All right. Mm -hmm. So because people people um, in the Democratic Party and even a lot of independents wanted to give Joe Biden a chance. Mm -hmm. They generally remembered uh, the uh, eight years of Barack Obama as being uh, uh, OK. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about from a conservative perspective. So, yeah, let's let uh, you know, let's let uh, Joe Biden come in on kind of Obama's coattails, settle things down. Yeah. And will have a moderate president, mm. and that is not turned out to be the case because this is not a moderate president. He's a radical, or at least the people pulling the strings are radicals. And whatever happens this coming Tuesday, the Democrats have nobody to blame but themselves. They've had the media on their side. That's, so they can't blame the media. And that's an important factor. So the American people, not only do they not like the Democratic Party agenda, but they also have caught on to the fact that yes. the, the media is in bed with the Democratic right. Party. And so they've, re they've rejected all the spin stories from the media that promote the Democratic Party and promote Joe Biden. Right. I mean, I have the AP story in front of me about tonight's speech from Joe Biden, and it's like talking points for the White House. The oh, yes. The Associated, Associated Press. The Associated Press story. Uh, and I, uh, It I probably is talking points from the White House. Yes. They probably have gotten them. Yes. I've heard people refer to as the AP as the mouthpiece of the White House for, right. for Democratic White Houses. Yes. I've, I've heard. Well, same thing with the the New York Times, the Washington Post. Obviously, shows like everything on MSNBC. Yes. Um, those kind of programs. Uh, every, I think everybody has kind of figured out that game. Mm -hmm. They know that Fox News leans right. They know that MSNBC... Washington Post, all these others we name, they lean left and are outspoken protectors of the administration. Um, they're apologists. They, and in some cases, uh, of course, big social media has jumped on board at playing the uh, guard the president uh, game. Oh, and, and, and to that point, what's really interesting now that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter just read a story before coming into the studio that our Treasury Department is considering an investigation into Elon Musk purchasing Twitter. And we know I'm, why. I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I'm disgusted by that. I didn't know that. I, that that's this the first just I've broke heard this of. morning. I didn't know that, but I'm, I'm, but I'm just, I'm disgusted by it, but I'm not surprised because the machinery of the federal government has been weaponized against, um, Anybody that disagrees with the Democratic Party agenda. Yeah. So, um, wow. Uh, maybe we'll hear more about that in the 
the days to come. All right, folks, we are going to take a short break. We need to catch our breath. <laughs> this is uh, there, there's uh, a million stories going on. We're going to try to shoehorn as many in as we can. And after we come back, we're going to have Abraham Hamilton the third. Will he'll be calm in. everything down? He'll calm everything. <laughs> Everything down. And then at 1045, Mark Tooley, president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, he's going to be talking about what's going on in one particular Christian denomination. So you will want to hear that. Please come back. What does the American Family Association stand for? AFA aims to evangelize the lost and disciple the believer. AFA aims to strengthen biblical marriages and equip parents to raise godly children. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation. Thank you for standing with us. We live in a day when America's families are under attack like never before. Buddy Smith, Senior Vice President of the American Family Association. The war against biblical principles rages on numerous fronts. The internet, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., America's corporate boardrooms, and the list goes on. At American Family Association, we're committed to standing against the enemies of God the enemies of your family. And we recognize it's an impossible task without God's favor and your partnership. Thank you for being faithful to pray for this ministry, to give financially and to respond to our calls for activism. What you do on the home front is crucial to what we do on the battlefront. We praise God for your faithfulness. And may he give us many victories in the battles ahead as we work together to restore our nation's biblical foundations. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. A group of pro-police high school students defied school leaders the other day and flew a flag honoring law enforcement. A member of the Saugus High School football team in Santa Clarita, California, ran onto the field waving a giant thin blue line flag. That flag had been at the center of a controversy after school leaders told kids they would no longer be allowed to display the flag. They said it was offensive. Superintendent Mike Kuhlman said the flag was even divisive. But most of the student body protested. They said it was important to honor police, especially since law enforcement stopped a school shooter at the high school. So on Friday night, the football team defied the leaders and ran onto the field with the stars and stripes and the thin blue line flags. These young patriots learned that sometimes you have to do the right thing no matter the cost. Be sure to read my book, Culture Jihad, How to Stop the Left from Killing a Nation. It's available at ToddSterns.com. Dear One Million Moms, I've always thought that maybe your organization was making a mountain out of a molehill. But today, I cannot believe what I just saw on my TV. Concerned about the trash flowing into your home through today's media that simply will not censor itself? Make your voice heard. If you see trash in the media, tell us. 
Use the Submit Trash button at 1millionmoms.com. That's 1millionmoms.com. And thanks. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. American Family Radio. This is today's issues. Email your comments to comments at AFR.net. Past broadcasts of today's issues are available for listening and viewing in the archive at AFR.net. Now, back to more of today's issues. And welcome back. Ed Vitagliano sitting in for Tim Wildman today. I'm joined in studio by Fred Jackson and Chris Woodward. Uh, Folks, uh, in less than a week, as we've been talking about, Election Day will be dawning. Hope you are registered. Hope you plan to go and vote. Hope you do vote. But later that night, as we're talking about the consequences of those votes, we will be having here on American Family Radio our election night special. And uh, I saw here, uh, I must have clicked past it, but uh, saw the, uh, the group that we'll be having. Uh, I'll be on. Fred, you'll be on. Tim will be on. Walker will be on. Chris, are you going to be on? I'll be anchoring the news. Steve okay. will be uh, as part of that effort as well. Uh, and we're going to have a bunch of guests uh-huh. on uh, for our election night coverage. 6 p.m. Central Time. Uh, now, folks, don't forget that, that that assumes you are adjusting your clocks over the weekend. But 6 p.m. Central Time next, this coming Tuesday, for our election night coverage uh, we'll be wall to wall with what's happening. Uh, uh, the consequences of very important vote here as our midterms are upon us, 2022 midterms. So keep that in mind, put that on your schedule this coming Tuesday, 6 PM central time right here on American family radio. All right. We want to welcome, uh, one of the calmer voices on American family radio, uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I should say one of the most passionate voices we've got, Abraham Hamilton III, general counsel and public policy analyst. He's also host of the Hamilton Corner, heard weekdays at 5 p.m. Central Time on American Family Radio. Uh, Abe, welcome back. Hi, Ed. I'm very calm. <laughs> You're listening to NPR. That, I'm just going to say that sounds a little creepy. That is not, that's not the, the voice of, uh, of the prophet that, that, that uh, we're used to. I don't know what's going on at your full-time job. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Abe, it is great to have you back. Uh, we have a couple stories we want to pitch to you. Yes. One of them... Uh, a, a discussion of uh, the the legal landscape in the state of Illinois. So, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, uh, pitch the story so that our listeners are aware. We're going to turn Abe loose to yeah. Talk this about is it. something that uh, has been going around for a, a good while now. Illinois uh, has uh, a law in the books, the Safety Act, S A F E hyphen T Act, uh, and it's one of those things uh, that we see and hear about in uh, big cities and blue states where. Uh, it calls for people to be, you know, uh, kind of slapped on the wrist for various crimes. Uh, it eliminates cash bail, 
A lot of people have uh, warned that this is going to, uh, it is contributing to uh, the rise in crime in places like Chicago, as well as other parts of Illinois. Um, and uh, it's only going to continue to be a problem. We had earlier today on our air, on our newscast, uh, audio from a Democrat that's running for mayor in Chicago saying this thing is terrible. Uh, what do you think about all this, Abe? Yeah, it, it, it's it's... <laughs> It's ludicrous, frankly, with the ascendancy of crime in big cities all across the country. You have measures like this that have aided that criminal ascension. Uh, It's important for the listeners to know that this measure was passed in 2021. uh, But starting on the legal front, the state of Illinois has a state constitutional provision governing bail. There are many who objected to this law in Illinois solely on constitutional grounds, state constitutional grounds, which state if you want to amend the state constitution, You have to go through the process provided by the state constitution to amend it. You cannot simply propose legislation through the legislature and to amend the state constitution. Then beyond that, you have the practical implications when you have provisions like eliminating cash cash bail. You have provisions that prohibit judges from considering a defendant's prior criminal history when determining whether he or she is a flight risk. Now, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you I have been in bail hearings. I have been in hearings when I have agreed to a reduction in the bond and I have asked for increased bonds or no bonds, depending on one of the major factors, the criminal history of the accused party. Criminal history is something that must be taken into consideration when determining the likelihood of whether or not the person will come to stand for their charges in court. And in addition to that, and more importantly, in my view, the likelihood to reoffend during dependency of charges. Well, you have the state legislature in Illinois saying ah, courts can't consider that anymore when determining uh, bail. Then you also have things like uh, pr- creating a 48 hour time period between the time when the defendant who is on bail being monitored electronically would leave home without permission or violate the provisions of that electronic monitoring. But you have to wait 48 hours before you could do anything about it. This is insane. This is insane. But we see these things happening in big cities all across the country in large metropolitan areas, large, large metropolitan areas all across the country. And they are signaling to criminals that, hey, you can be a criminal and do your criminal things and there will be little to no consequences as a result. Uh, the reason we mention this is because this week uh, and over the weekend, there were uh, a number of Democ- Democratic now prosecutors, yeah. uh, district attorneys uh, in the state who were critical of the so-called Safety Act for the very reasons you're talking about, Abe. I mean, the, the very idea that a person who is uh, restricted to his home with an ankle bracelet Okay, so we have electronic monitoring. They're not supposed mm-hmm. to. They're not supposed to leave, right? I mean, that's the way those things used to work. If you are, uh, if the alarm goes off, I don't know how this works. I'm going to ask you about this. If the alarm goes off because you walk across the street with your ankle bracelet on, you can be arrested for that. I mean, it, I mean, there, there a are a violation of. Yeah, it would be considered a violation of your bond conditions. You'd be rearrested and potentially new charges applied. Yeah, so in this case, what it what this Safety Act has said, and of course this is not the only problem with it, but it's, it's one that's just the most mind-blowing, is that you can leave your premises where you've been restricted, told to remain at your home. You know, you're, you're not in jail. You're, you're allowed to stay in your house and uh, watch The Price is Right, uh, or whatever you want to do, uh, that's quite a deal. 
uh, for someone who's accused of a crime. But this person mm-hmm. can leave and can't be charged with a crime for 48 hours, which means that person can go out and commit other crimes uh, yes. and, 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 and without consequences unless they get caught doing that. But 48 hours, they can't be charged. Uh, uh, so um, this is happening around the country, these kinds of laws, and we're not shocked to, uh, to see crime spiking in these big cities. Um, all right. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, Abe. No, I was going to say, and it's these types of provisions that exacerbate that. I mean, it's, it's becoming like a broken record, the, the amount of repetition being employed when you have, oh, a crime is committed in this such and such jurisdiction. Oh, this person just happens to be out on bail from a previous crime. Oh, how did they get out on bail? Oh, they were issued a, a personal reconnaissance bond or they were out, you know, with the promise to return. And you have these things happening all over the country. And, and, and a great source of the cognitive dissonance uh, was palpable in the debate between Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul, the gubernatorial debate in New York. When Lee Zeldin, the Republican challenger, says, we've gone through nearly half of the debate and Governor Kathy Hochul has not once mentioned the, uh, the rising crime in the state of New York and in particular New York City. Kathy Hochul responds by saying, I don't know why that is so important to you. Mm-hmm. Which I don't is, know why that is so important. If that's to you. not on a campaign ad every hour, Lee Zeldin should find a new PR guy. Well, she's going to find out why it's so important to uh, Lee Zeldin because it's very important to the voters of New York. Yes. At least that's my it's expectation. The, well, it, the, it's not a, just an expectation. Quinnipiac did a poll. The number one issue for New York voters is crime. Yeah. It's the number one issue. So, so again, this cognitive dissonance, you have people like this who assert these policies, but because they live separate from the the consequences of those policies, they can't understand why it's so important to Lee Zeldin that policies that I support are wreaking havoc on the lives of New Yorkers or Illinois, Illinoisans. I don't know if that's the right way. People in Illinois or in California and San Francisco or all over the country. Yeah. Hey, listen, we've got two minutes left. I do want to just uh, because I, wa- I want to get your reaction to this, a, but I also want to let our listeners mm-hmm. know, Chris, uh, as quickly as you can, let our listeners know the the uh, the decision uh, regarding Kroger yeah. and a couple of employees. Yeah, two employees are getting a big check from Kroger. This is a story out of the Conway, Arkansas area. These two employees did not want to wear Kroger aprons that had a heart uh, that was rainbow colored. The employees said, this is not right. I don't believe in LGBTQ equality. Uh, They took a traditional marriage approach to uh, things, uh, and they were fired for that. Uh, And after three years, uh, Kroger has agreed to pay these ladies $180,000 to settle a religious discrimination lawsuit filed by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on behalf of these two employees. What say you, Abe? That last part that you said is extremely significant. It's the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that filed the lawsuit against Kroger. It wasn't even a private lawsuit asserted. It was the EEOC that filed the lawsuit. And so after these three years, you have this settlement coming uh, for these two women who were terminated. It shows the egregious nature of their their religious freedom, their religious religious liberty rights being violated. Uh, One of the ladies agreed to buy her own apron of her own cost just so she wouldn't have to wear that. And, and both of them were long-term employees from Kroger. Nevertheless, uh, they terminated them. This should be 
a signal to corporations all across the country that there is this thing you might have heard of it it's called the u.s constitution <laughs> and it's still in effect and it still must be respected if you endeavor to continue to do business in our nation and as far, uh if i'm not mistaken the eoc uh eeoc uh ruled that kroger had to uh instruct its managers uh yes. about religious accommodation and had to make That's sure right. that uh Religious objections to certain policies must be accommodated. I mean, this is a, so in, in our last uh, seconds here. So what happened? How did the EEOC get involved in this? Is this something where these two employees filed a complaint with the EEOC yes. and then they bring the charges? Is that how that works? Yes, that, that that's what happened. So in this instance, the employees filed a complaint with the EEOC after they were terminated. The EEOC picked up. Uh, their their complaint and asserted it in court uh, against Kroger, and which has led to this settlement. And it's sad that it took Kroger to actually be sued in several years of litigation before they agreed to this settlement for these employees. Which which shows you how dug in the yes. pro LGBTQ um, activists are in corporate America. Because it seems like this yes. would be a no-brainer. Just let them wear a. Just let them wear one of the old Kroger aprons that exactly. didn't have the the uh, rainbow coloring on it. That would have been a, a simple thing. But they are out for blood. I, I hate to say that yes. these activists and you know wherever they're located in these corporate uh, behemoths, whether it's you know HR or or elsewhere, it just proves that they are, are not going to follow the constitutional and legal provisions without being forced I mean, is that too hard yeah and, and people ask all the time what else is there to fight for you have lgbt everything all over the country on all over the place everywhere what is left to fight for what's left is to force christians and to force the church to adopt the ideology and to celebrate it right. tolerance was never the objective and this is another example of the fact that no you will not be tolerated unless you capitulate all right but thankfully these women stood strong all right well hey listen the, the voice you heard folks is abraham hamilton the third uh, who's general counsel and public policy analyst for American Family Association. He's also host of the Hamilton Corner, heard weekdays at 5 p.m. Central Time on AFR. Abe, thank you, and we uh, look forward to your show tonight, brother. All righty. Thank you. You guys have a great day. All right. Bye -bye. Uh, well, um, uh, Abe was just talking about uh, the, uh, the corporate America and how there are Christians inside these corporate giants that are trying to fight for religious freedom. Uh, one of the places I'm sad to say where uh, homosexual activists have taken over uh, is the United Methodist Church. That's right. Uh, one of the most one of the most storied uh, Christian denominations uh, in the world started by John Wesley, or at least following from, following forth from his ministry, uh, has gone over to the other side, and it is having consequences with regards to churches that are wanting to remain faithful to Scripture and to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to discuss that is uh, Mark Tooley, president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, uh, Mark is a friend of this ministry and has been involved in cultural issues for decades, I think as long as I've been here at American Family Association. Uh, Mark, welcome back to Today's Issues. Yes, great to be with you all. 
All right, Fred, uh, Mark had, had written something recently. Uh, we wanted to have him on to discuss it. Why don't you uh, introduce the story to our listeners? Yeah, Mark, uh, I remember going back 20 years, our founder, Dr. Don Wildman, uh, on his daily program here, AFA Today, uh, talking about this that something was going on inside the leadership of the United Methodist uh, denomination. Of course, he was United Methodist preacher, right. ordained in that. And he saw problems. He saw a uh, homosexual-friendly type policies taking over in the leadership, the seminaries. And now we've reached the point, Mark, and you write about this, is that the uh, more and more United Methodist local congregations are voting to get out of the denomination, but in some cases they're facing resistance from, I'll call it the head office of the denomination. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, the official standards of the United Methodist Church are still traditional and biblical, but not enforced by the U.S. uh, church uh, leadership. And so uh, there had been a proposed uh, formal division of the denomination that would have taken place in 2020, but for the pandemic, which postponed the church's governing convention three times, now rescheduled for 2024. So now thousands of congregations are taking uh, advantage of a temporary policy allowing congregations to vote themselves out of the denomination with a one-time payment uh, which will end at the end of next year. But probably at least 1,000 congregations have already voted themselves out. We expect at least 1,500 by the end of this year. Probably by the end of next year, somewhere between three and 5,000 congregations in the U.S. will vote themselves out of the United Methodist Church. Uh, and, and, and roughly what percentage, that estimate, guesstimate, whatever, uh, of uh, the number of uh, churches that will leave the UMC in this country uh, what percentage of the total is that, uh, does that represent? There are 30,000 churches in the U.S., so if 5,000 leave, that would be one-sixth of the churches, but it probably wouldn't end up being about uh, 20 or maybe as high as 25 percent of the uh, population. Okay. All right, now, now before we kind of come back around to what's happened in the United States, I, I do want to be fair because there are a lot of— uh, Methodists worldwide that have not followed the apostasy of the leadership of the uh, United Methodist Church when it comes to the issue of homosexuality and transgender ideology. Am I correct on that? Yes, this is why the official policies have never been liberalized and, in fact, were strengthened in 2019. A majority of the church's membership is now in Africa, where there are 7 million United Methodists versus 6 million in the U.S., the U.S. Church loses 200, or was losing 200,000 members annually before the pandemic. Almost certainly that's higher now. The African Church was gaining 400,000 members a year. Uh, and so, to what, obviously, you've studied this, and you've studied uh, other denominations um, for a long time uh, as president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. So uh, I'm going to ask you this question, and this is not guesswork on your part or, you know, just your own personal opinion. But what you just said about the growth of United Methodism uh, in Africa and the, the constriction of it here in this country, to what do you attribute 
the growth in one part of the world and the shrinking in the in in our nation. Well, Methodism has lost members every year since 1965. 57 years of continuous decline involving the loss of five million members. Africa has gone up from near zero to seven million. Obviously, the Africans are very evangelistic and very traditional. The U.S. Church has been governed by liberal theology for most of the 20th century, and so we've reaped the consequences. Mark, uh, just Fred again, for these churches, and as you mentioned, there are thousands that are are getting set to leave or in the the process of getting out. They're facing some challenges in some areas. Uh, Do you think that these churches leaving will form, form their own group, or when they leave, are these congregations kind of on their own? Most of them, perhaps as many as 85 or 90 percent, have or will ultimately go into the new global Methodist Church. Some of them will stay independent, and a few of them have gone into other denominations like the Free Methodist denomination. Okay. It's Chris here. I've, I've got a question. Uh, not everybody listening to the show right now is a member of the United Methodist Church. Maybe they're Baptist, they're Presbyterian, non-denominational, what have you. Uh, and sometimes people think, well, you know, that's the UMC's problem. That doesn't impact me. Should you be concerned that what's going on in the UMC and what's been going on there might be in your denomination or in your church at some point in the future? Yes, you should be, because all the problems in that denomination are problems in the culture at large and will touch all churches and all denominations in some sense to varying degrees. And your listeners can also be helpful in this sense. Many, many, perhaps most United Methodists are unaware of what's happening beyond their local church, are unaware that they have the option of leaving the denomination before it further liberalizes. And so your listeners who have Methodist neighbors and friends can let them know they've got this wonderful opportunity devote themselves out for a better future. Uh, Mark, you're an excellent writer. Um, uh, Tell people where they can go to read your stuff or to find out more about the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Yes, thank you. They can go to our website, which is uh, theird.org, T-H-E-I-R-D.org. All right. Uh, Mark, thank you for uh, all you've done for... Christianity in this country, you and uh, your organization, uh, you have been a watchman on the wall and have diligently and responsibly and faithfully warned Christians about what has been happening, not just in the United Methodist Church, but elsewhere in the Christian uh, community here in this country and abroad. We appreciate you, and thank you for being on with us. Thank you all for your ministry and all of your encouragement. All right. Thank you, Mark. Have a have a good day. I, I I find it amazing the similarity. It's not only just the United Methodist Church here in the United States, but it's the Episcopal Church USA. Right. It is the uh, Presbyterian Church USA, PC USA, yeah. all facing the similar problem. Uh, and the genesis of it is the acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle. Yes. And that the it. It started, this acceptance movement started in the seminaries and amongst the leadership. I mentioned Brother Don, our founder, uh, an ordained United uh, Methodist Church. I remember 20 years ago co-hosting with him on his AFA Today program. And over and over and over again, he was challenging members, in this case of the United Methodist Church, to approach the leadership 
and to challenge the leadership because that was the problem. And, uh, and Ed, you're an ordained pastor. It is amazing to me that the problem in accepting the authority of Scripture would begin in the seminaries. What happens at the seminary level? Well, <clears throat> I, listen, I, I think, and, and you're exactly right about the genesis of these kinds of problems, but uh, the Bible warns us, uh, the New Testament especially, but not just the New Testament, the Old Testament, talk. You know, the, the, the Bible through and through talks about uh, false prophets and false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. The warning of Scripture is to remain faithful to the teaching of the apostles, mm. all right? And that is what we have in, in uh, the New Testament and, of course, the, the Old Testament with the, the, the prophetic word, the law, and the histories that you find in there, that the Scripture is our guide to faith and practice. And if you depart from, I always, I always like to, uh, to point when I'm teaching on this particular issue of truth and error, I always like to point people to 1 John chapter 4, because there the Apostle John, okay, you've got to remember, he walked with Jesus, all right, and heard Jesus teach, saw what he did. But in chapter 4 of 1 John, the apostle says, this is how you can tell the spirit of Antichrist. This is how you can tell the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You can tell who's of God and who is of the devil. Do they believe what we teach, <laughs> the apostles? Yes. And if they do not, you are to uh, leave their influence. And the problem is in our seminaries, far too many of those who were teaching were not teaching what the apostles taught. They didn't even believe it. And it corrupted many of these who would go on to become pastors who would teach an adulterated gospel. Yeah. That's what the apostle Paul talks about. He says, we did not adulterate. We did not mix the word of God with other teachings. Mm. And we see the fruit of that. Yes. And it is a poisonous fruit, and it is a deadly fruit. Yeah. All right, sermon is over. We're going to take a five-minute break for news. And when we come back, more on today's issue. Steve Jordahl will join us. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.